If you would this morning, especially if you're visiting with us, we have been going through the Psalms, especially book 1 through chapter 41. We come to the second half of Psalm 31, verses 14 through 24 this morning. Psalm 31, 14 through 24. The context of our passage, the first part of this psalm, is a trusting believer in the Lord who is in a time of dire distress. Our text turns from laying laying out despair, which he just did in the last few verses leading up to verse 13, to confirming trust in the Savior. So let me ask you the question as we read these words this morning. What does your faith look like when times are bleak? Our Savior quoted this psalm on the cross by using these words earlier in this psalm, into your hands I commit my spirit. Are you willing to do this because you trust in the Lord? Hear the words of the psalmist David, beginning at verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your, from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. As we consider the conclusion of this psalm this morning, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, these are your words. You remind us that though everything else should fail, your word stands forever. Father, I pray that the things that are spoken here might be understood by hearts that understand, heard by ears that hear because your spirit is at work within us. Lord, I pray that anything that is spoken here that is not consistent with your own word shall fall away and never be heard from again. Lord, we pray that all of my words, all of our thoughts, and all the meditations of our hearts shall be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the early days of taking the gospel to what was then known as the New Hebrides, John Patton took the gospel along with other missionaries to what is now known as Vanuatu. They encountered a people that was violent and resistant. In fact, they were cannibals. 
And in the early days, between 1846 and 1858, upon his arrival, the missionaries there encountered much distress. Disease took its toll on the missionaries and their families. There was danger all around. Everything at one point began to look as if it was falling apart. Those who were native to the island began to fall upon them in violence. Disease had already taken its toll because one couple, even in their disease, had just gone plumb crazy. Others died, including John Patton's wife and newborn son, just three months after his arrival. And just as there were those cannibals coming to destroy and kill the missionaries and to burn their houses, a ship came and rescued them in a timely fashion. But John Patton and others would return and keep sending the gospel to these natives. How can they keep going in the loss of their family, in the loss of their safety, not knowing what should come or if they would have any rescue when those who they were taking the gospel to would violently attack them. It is only by faith. You see, here is David in this psalm saying that the things were so dire and desperate leading up to verse 14 of our text this morning. He said, years of groaning had taken place. Things were difficult and trying. And it says here, there was terror on every side. That's verse 13. But as he lays out before God his situation, that everything is in dire distress, and it looks as if there is no hope, here is the theme of this psalm begun in the first part of the psalm and continued through the end. But I trust in you. You see, faith is exhibited by trust in the Lord, by understanding the treasure we have in the Lord, and by taking courage in the Lord. First of all, this statement of trust. As if you didn't know from reading the first part of the psalm, if you remember the first part, it says, In you I take refuge, O Lord. In your righteousness deliver me, be a rock of refuge for me, for you are my rock and my fortress, and it goes on. Here he says it out loud, I trust in you. And I don't think he's saying this just so that others can think that he has a certain reputation. Because in case you didn't get that first statement, he repeats it, he says, you are my God, in those times of trouble and distress and everything that is taking place, he pauses as if it is necessary to say to all the world around him, as those who sing this psalm, remember the psalms were a songbook for the church and still are, to say to the world that the Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah, you are my God. And then he says this in verse 15, my times are in your hand. Now what does he mean by my times 
are in your hand. In other words, this is a reminder here that earlier he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. With total abandon through all the difficulties of life, he is relying completely upon the Lord. And he is reminding himself and telling everyone that it doesn't matter what these times are, whether they're good or bad, whether they're times of blessing or times of distress, it doesn't matter how long they last. Will God end our time here on earth today or in a decade or in 50 years? Who knows? He's recognizing that to trust in God means to place your times in his hands. To understand that he is sovereign and that he will because he is our God and we are his people, he is the one who will provide for us, strengthen us, encourage us, and give us what we need. So then, on the back of that statement, you are my God, my times are in your hand, he then calls upon the covenant keeper with a bold imperative or directive under that covenant. Remember, when he says the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your English translations, he's calling upon the covenant name of the God of Israel. And that covenant name implies a relationship between God and his people. So much so that he can ask God to do certain things. Notice these things which we call imperatives. First of all, rescue or save me from the hand of my enemies. In essence here, as we look at this, he says, describes two people, enemies and persecutors. He is saying, rescue me from persecution, from trials and difficulties. Those who would seek My downfall, my end, would seek curses upon me. Because God is his God and because God is his covenant God of blessing, he's calling to God under that covenant to do what God has already said he would do. Rescue him from persecution. The second thing he says in verse 16 is another command or imperative under this covenant relationship. He says, make your face shine on your servant. Now, you might remember that these words are indicative of a a blessing that God's high priests were to give the people. In the book of Numbers, chapter 6, we have that blessing that we ask God to make his face to shine upon us. So this is a reminder, reminding God here of this high priestly blessing That by God's grace he has called a people unto himself. And those people then receive this wonderful blessing of having God's face shine upon them. Now, what does it mean to have God's face shine upon you? Does that mean that the sun is a little brighter that day? Does that mean that that things are just going hunky-dory for you in in the days to come? It's really to indicate God's presence and present imminent action on their behalf. In other words, it's giving them the understanding that God is there for them, that God has not abandoned them, 
and that God will give them peace. Now, we know that sometimes this isn't describing the peace of the world. That is, that everything is just wonderful and we don't have to worry about anything that day. There are no enemies knocking at our doorsteps and there's no trials in our relationships. That's not what he's talking about. This is what we might say, the peace that passes understanding. To know that in difficult times, God's blessing remains upon his people because he is our God. He will help us through those difficult times. And even though we should possibly perish at the hands of our persecutors, in the end, God will not abandon us, but he will always have us in his presence so that even the Apostle Paul will say, to die is gain. And then, of course, in the times that he is in, he says this, Save me in your hesed, your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness. So these three things, he's calling upon the covenant keeper, God of Israel, Rescue me from persecution, give me the priestly blessing, and save me in your steadfast or covenant faithfulness to your people. Isn't that amazing? That like David, we as believers, when we pray to God in the midst of difficulty, if we truly have placed our trust in him with complete abandon, forsaking this life and the world around us so that we can gain the wonders of a relationship with God through Christ, that we can call upon God to do the things he has promised to do, to save us, to bless us, to rescue us. That is what David is doing in these difficult times. But in case you don't get the wonderful blessing of that relationship that he has with God through Christ, for him looking forward to Christ, for us looking back on the cross, he shows the contrast here. Here is the contrasting treatment between God's people and God's enemies. He says, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. This is a reminder of a question, or not a question, but a request earlier in this particular psalm. He's already said this. The very first verse said, "Let, let me never be put to shame. Now, this isn't necessarily David saying, I want to have a good reputation before everybody. This is saying, Lord, by your actions and your relationship with me, the world will see who you are and what you are doing by what happens with me, the king of your people. He says, in this, because I call upon you, let me not be put to shame. But here's what will happen to God's enemies. Shame will come to them. Now today we don't like to talk about shame, do we? We really don't like the three-letter word sin. In fact, if you were to go to a counselor today, you will not find them talking about your sin. They might talk about brokenness. They might talk about uh, some difficulties you might be experiencing. But the world's way of dealing with sin is to call it something else. But with sin comes something very important. 
God gives us two things when he's convicting us of sin. He, first of all, reminds us that we have real guilt. You see, sin gives us guilt. That's a consequence of our sin. We are guilty before a holy God and we deserve death and destruction. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of sin to us by a God who will convict us of sin is shame. If you're like me, you don't think of shame as being a gift. The psalmist here asks not to be put to shame. But here it says the enemies will have shame. Now shame is something that if we have it, we don't like it. We don't like the consequences of it. There's nothing about it that is nice. In fact, it it reminds us that we are publicly humiliated before a watching world when we have shame. We feel terrible. But that shame, sometimes by God's grace and the convicting Holy Spirit, can cause us to repent and turn from our sin. If not, that shame will go with us to the grave. This is what happens to the enemies of God. Shame and silence will bring them to Sheol. Now that's just not not just an alliterated thing. Notice the three S words. In fact, two SH words. That's great for a pastor to have alliteration, right? To go in shame to Sheol. In other words, that if you are not repentant of your sins and you remain an enemy of God, and of course scripture reminds us that until we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are God's enemies. If we are God's enemies refusing to repent of our sin, we will have this shame that will overwhelm us at some point in our lives or at our death, and we will go in silence to this place called Sheol. That is our grave, the place of the dead. There will be no forgiveness there. Our shame will be with us forever, part of the torment of hell. For those who are God's people... We can ask God not to give us this shame and to remove the shame we have from our sin. And he will do that, having nailed the consequences of our sin along with our sin on the cross. But here, those who refuse to repent, who remain the enemies of God, will go in shame and silence to Sheol. And then David makes a plea. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Now here's a description of what the enemies of God do. They have lips of falsehood. That's the literal sense of this passage. They have lips of falsehood, as it describes here, that speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Now perhaps... You might understand this better by this description. These are those who think in their self-righteousness that their wickedness is good. And when they think that their wickedness is a good thing, they look at those who are the people of God, who proclaim a righteousness by the truth of God's word, and they mock it, they criticize it, And they publicly condemn it, even thinking because they think they're right and the people of God are wrong, they speak in pride and contempt and arrogance, mocking the people of God. I'm glad that doesn't happen today. 
Perhaps you've seen that on the news this week. People surrounding those who would proclaim truth. People who would protest in order to promote their sin as a righteous thing. How can David say this? He wasn't in our times. He doesn't know how that works, does he? Perhaps you remember as David escaped Jerusalem because his son was taking over the kingdom and there was this little man or this man named Shimei who was walking along the hills as they were trying to escape the clutches of his son and he was a relative of Saul and he thought even though God had taken the kingdom from Saul and given it to David he thought that this was an illustration now of God's judgment against David to give the kingdom back to Saul and so he began to Ask curses down upon David in his arrogance and his pride. And David was asked by his commander of his army, can, can we just go and kill him and get him out of sight? And David said, no. Maybe God's even asked him to curse me. And he let him go. Why? Because he trusted God to take care of the situation. Notice he doesn't say, Lord, let me go and take care of these prideful, arrogant people and get rid of them. He says to God, let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. This is what it means to trust in the Lord in these situations. You see, today's voices of arrogant, self-righteous vitriol against the people of God, which, unless the Lord intervenes and changes the direction of our society, are going to get louder and more vocal and cause us more problems and give us danger and perhaps imprison us. From traditional atheists to radical purveyors of sexual depravity, They fail to see or acknowledge their religious fervor is for them a fatal flaw. They may kill Christians. They may take away their property. They may imprison them. They may do all kinds of things to them. But in the the end, the Lord will bring to nothing those that think they are something And the wicked will be put to shame going silently to Sheol. So what do we do? We ask the Lord to silence them. We ask the Lord to silence the lips of falsehood. That is particularly the language that is false. We don't ask that the Lord would necessarily silence them altogether, that they would never have a word to speak. We ask that the silence would be the silence of the lies and deception that come from their mouths. And hopefully we would pray that for ourselves as well. You see, to trust in the Lord is also to trust that in the end, the Lord's got this. Sometimes, particularly because we have so many gray heads in our congregation, if you're some of the young people visiting us today, you might notice that we have a lot of gray hairs. Sometimes these people with gray hairs get all bent out of shape because they tend to think things were better in their generation and things have gotten so much worse. The problem is there's been sin in every generation. There have been arrogant, prideful people maligning the people of God in every generation. 
And so when we look at this, sometimes we older people think, well, now there's no more hope. This generation is worse than all the others. But that's not what David does. He says, my trust is in the Lord. You are my God. And God gives us his treasure. Verse 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness. He's just been talking about these arrogant, lying people that mock the people of God and persecute them. And then he turns right around and he says, God, your goodness is so abundant. This is the guy who said things are so bad I've just been able to groan for years. I feel like a broken vessel, forgotten like a dead person. And here he says, your goodness is overwhelming. Abundant goodness of God, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Who are they for? What is this goodness for? Now, he didn't say, I'm experiencing this right now. He said, this is stored up for me, for those who fear you. Of course, this is part of faith too, isn't it? To understand the proper thing to fear is not man, but God. It's stored up for those who fear God. Goodness. In fact, we may not even get these good things that we really desire. Peace, prosperity, all those things. We may not even get those things until we either die or Jesus comes back. But he's storing them up for us. Not only that, but he's going to make these things public for those seeking his refuge. He says, and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. At some point, everybody's going to know that God blesses his people. Of course, right now, we know that sometimes it doesn't look that way. Sometimes we look at somebody who's trusting the Lord and, and it's somebody who's lost their job. Or we look at somebody in a faraway place where persecution is so dangerous they've been imprisoned. Or their family members have been killed and we say, well, well, where's the abundant goodness here? Well, it's because at some point, God, in all of the world to see, maybe it will be at that last trumpet sounding when everything should come into place. He will make public the blessings and the goodness that he has for his people. That's the treasure of the Lord. And it's, it's an active loyalty of God. Here's what he says in verse 20. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. First of all, he's hiding his people from conspiracies of men. That means it's not as bad as it can get. There are some times where God preserves people, sometimes in miraculous ways. You've heard the stories of how some missionary has been spared in a a moment of, of unlikely providence of God. Sometimes you understand that despite the danger that you're in, God has rescued you. I can remember a time coming home from seminary in my big Crown Victoria car when it had begun to snow when it wasn't supposed to. And I went on the road and I turned around a complete 360 on the road and ended up in the ditch not knowing that just a mile down the road was a terrible accident that I might have been in. You see, God will hide his people, not only from those circumstances of life, but from the conspiracies of men. Do you think there are conspiracies? Here it is. 
He says, you hide them from the plots of men, plots, conspiracies, however you want to say this, from the strife of tongues. It's amazing what people will do to plot the destruction of God's people. It's happened throughout the ages, hasn't it? There are those who say, we need to destroy these Christians. We need to destroy these radical, right people who believe in other things that we think is terrible. And yet, God will hide at times his people from these conspiracies of men. How does he do it? He says, verse 21, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. This word, wondrously, is to do it in a surprising fashion or in a strange way. It was unexpected. You know, those moments when you think that there's no way God can rescue his people, and here it is, in a wondrous way, he does it. How? He is covenantally loyal to them. This idea of steadfast love, that relationship God has with his people. Surprising hesed or steadfast love in the city of affliction. It's a surprise God can rescue you. How surprised were the people of God when they were surrounded by 180,000 Assyrians in the city of Jerusalem. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and killed them all. How surprising it was in the days of Jehoshaphat when he sent out a choir in front of the army and God brought about the victory. How strange that is. How strange it is to march around a fortified city seven times and blow trumpets and shout and the walls come tumbling down. And here is the cry. Here is the cry of the one that struggles to look at what is wonderful. He says, I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. In other words, David admits here that he had doubts. He had doubts that God really was going to rescue him. He had doubts that God was going to rescue him from this terrible situation that he found himself in. So much so that he said out loud, I'm cut off from your presence. God answers. You know, there's a description about the greatest man among those born of women until Jesus. This man was sitting in prison because he had the audacity to publicly challenge the morality of the current governing leader. He had impacted countless numbers of people for the sake of God as a prophet telling them that they were sinners in need of repentance and pointing them to Jesus. And yet, in his dire distress and despair, as he's sitting in prison, wondering what comes next, he sent his followers to ask Jesus, are you really the one? In the moment of despair and distress, he doubted. And he asked if Jesus was really the one. Now, who was this? John the Baptist. The man, Jesus said, was the man who was greatest among those born of women. If David and John the Baptist had flashes of doubt, don't be surprised when any of us do. 
And yet, God doesn't abandon his people even when we express these doubts because what does he say? What does David say? But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. He admits here, Lord, I doubted your goodness in these circumstances. I doubted that my times were really understood by you. And yet you still heard me. Some of you right now may be harboring doubts, thinking how can the God of the Bible really exist and really be true when I look at the world and it seems like nothing, nothing I hear about in the Bible can possibly be true. How can we have a good God when there's so many terrible things going on? How can we really understand that God has all this when it seems like culture is closing in upon us and wicked is being called good and good wicked? God won't abandon you if you're truly his person. Someone that he has called to believe and trust in him, despite your doubts and despite the circumstances of your day, he will still answer your cries for help. Maybe not in the way you expect. Maybe not to give you relief in the moment. But because he will not abandon you for all eternity. And then is the last part of this psalm. Take courage. Take courage in the Lord. David, through all this, recognizes his doubts, his fears, his inadequacies, his sin, all of these things shown in this psalm from beginning to end. And in all of this, he calls out the people of God, those who are faithful, and he calls them to love the Lord. Now, perhaps he's thinking of the great command of God, the first and most important, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's thinking of that in times of distress, in times when he's doubted, in times when he wonders if God is going to answer, but in the bottom of his heart, he can still say those words, I trust in you, you are my God. He calls for everybody, all the saints in the church, to love the Lord. Why? Well, here is why. He's reminding them of his protection. The Lord preserves the faithful. Interesting that he would use this word faithful. It's a word related to the steadfast love of God. It's his faithful individuals, those who are faithful in the covenant that God has made with his people. Those who trust him and believe in him. He abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. So it's not only reminding them of his protection, but reminding them of his retribution for those who are his enemies. Remember the call out, Lord, let the lying lips be silenced. Because of these two things, God will preserve the faithful and God will repay the enemies of God. Let us love him. And of course, to love him means to obey him. Then he says this, be strong and let your heart take courage. Now notice it's after he said all these other things. He doesn't go at the beginning of this when everything looks bleak and wants to tell you, okay, just just buck up, camper. Be strong. No. It's be strong because God will strengthen their hearts, not because they can do it. And it's only for those who are waiting for the Lord. I want to ask you, maybe some of you haven't, particularly if you're younger, 
But have you ever been in the weakened position where it seems that if one more ounce of distress is put on your soul shoulders, everything is going to fall apart? I've known many in this position. Mothers who are agonizing over their children. Widows who feel lost without their spouse. Forlorn and overburdened men who feel as if the world is on their shoulders and there's no escape. How can we tell them, be strong? Only in a covenant relationship with God because he has been faithful to us. Only if they are waiting for the Lord. What a term this is. Remember, waiting for the Lord to take care of the problems. Then he will silence the lips of deception. Then he will bring those in shame down to Sheol. Let the Lord take care of those things. It is he who makes us strong. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus rode that donkey's colt into Jerusalem. The people were praising God, throwing their cloaks on the ground, waving the branches in the air, saying things like, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all that while as Jesus is riding that colt into the gates of Jerusalem, he knows the betrayal that's coming. He knows the public humiliation that's on its way. He knows the suffering and the crucifixion. He knows the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows all of it. Yet before he even quotes Psalm 31 on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit, he had already totally abandoned his life to the Lord. This is what we need in our society now, is Christians who are willing to totally abandon their life to the Lord. To trust in the Lord is to know that your times are in his hand. To see his goodness in the midst of troubles means you have to give up the idea that you can save yourself. To wait for his loyal actions on your behalf means you have to put vengeance aside and you have to remember that God will in his time raise up his people and destroy his enemies. To be strong is to be strong not in yourself because you will fail yourself. No matter how they say it, be strong, be yourself, do what you can be, be all that you can be. Whatever the circumstances are, all of those things, if you trust in yourself, it will not look pretty in the end. But our trust is in him. The God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. The God who in the midst of our hopelessness gave us the hope of heaven Because our sins are destroyed on the cross of Christ. You see, he is my God. Let's pray. Father, in a world that indeed seems to be increasingly closing in upon us, calling what is good evil and what is evil good, seeing those who would in arrogance destroy your people, seeing sometimes your people cowering in fear of man in their own sin. Father, I pray that you will help us not just to sigh, not just to groan, not just to doubt your goodness, but Lord, 
to trust that our times are in your hands. Lord, give us this grace, this grace of faith in you, despite all that goes on in this world.